Our sermon text this morning will be Genesis chapter 12, verses 10 to 20. Genesis chapter 12, verses 10 to 20. I think I'll read the whole of Genesis chapter 12, just to give it some context. Before we read, we'll pray. Please join me in prayer. Our Father in heaven, as we now sit here in this place under the study of your word, we pray, Father, that you would bless your word to us, that we would be given ears that hear, eyes that see, and hearts that are understanding and obedient. This we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Reading Genesis chapter 12, starting at verse 1. Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you, and I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great, so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonours you I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So Abram went as the Lord had told him, and Lot went with him. Abram was 75 years old when he departed from Haran. And Abram took Sarai his wife, and Lot his brother's son, and all their possessions that they had gathered, and the people that they had acquired in Haran, and they set out to go to the land of Canaan. When they came to the land of Canaan, Abram passed through the land to the place at Shechem, to the oak of Moreh. At that time the Canaanites were in the land. Then the Lord appeared to Abram and said, To your offspring I will give this land. So he built there an altar to the Lord who had appeared to him. From there he moved to the hill country on the east of Bethel and pitched his tent, with Bethel on the west and Ai on the east. And there he built an altar to the Lord and called upon the name of the Lord. And Abram journeyed on, still going toward the Negeb. Verse 10. Now there was a famine in the land. So Abram went down to Egypt to sojourn there, for the famine was severe in the land. When he was about to enter Egypt, he said to Sarai, his wife, I know that you are a woman beautiful in appearance, and when the Egyptians see you, they will say, this is his wife. Then they will kill me, but they will let you live. Say you are my sister, that it may go well with me because of you, and that my life may be spared for your sake. When Abram entered Egypt, The Egyptians saw that the woman was very beautiful. And when the princes of Pharaoh saw her, they praised her to Pharaoh. And the woman was taken into Pharaoh's house. And for her sake, he dealt well with Abram. And he had sheep, oxen, male donkeys, male servants, female servants, female donkeys, and camels. But the Lord afflicted Pharaoh and his house with great plagues because of Sarai, Abram's wife. So Pharaoh called Abram and said, What is this you have done to me? Why did you not tell me that she was your wife? Why did you say she is my sister, so that I took her for my wife? Now then, here is your wife. Take her and go. And Pharaoh gave men orders concerning him, and they sent him away with his wife and all that he had. Amen, and may God bless his word to us. So last time we were in Genesis, we looked at the first part of Genesis chapter 12 and there we saw that Abram was called to get out of the land in which he was and to go to the land of Canaan, the promised land. And we saw that this calling was effective. It was powerful that Abram obeyed the call. He went to the place to which God had called him and there he took the first steps of faith. In the presence of the unbelievers, in the presence of the Canaanites, Abram built an altar to the Lord and worshipped the Lord. 
In the presence of idolaters, Abram worshipped God who could not be seen. God who could not be um, represented by an idol or an image. To them, he must have appeared a complete fool. Abram was a man much to be admired. We're told in the scriptures, in the book of Hebrews at chapter 11, that he's a hero of the faith. We're told in both the books of uh, Romans and Galatians that he's to be considered a father in the faith, even in a father of the New Testament faith, that we by faith can be considered to be children of Abram. We are also told, if you remember, that there was a problem that Abram's wife Sarai was barren. We find that back in Genesis chapter 11 at verse 30. Yet God called Abram and Abram took his family into Canaan. He took his household. He took his nephew. He took all that he had. Well, faith is good and faith is wonderful. And many who are newly converted will tell you that at the beginning of their life of faith, it's as though everything is just great. You know, the birds sing a sweeter tune. I'm thinking there's a hymn about that. You know, the grass is a sweeter green. You know, things are, things are just great. And I remember the same feeling. I was converted at the age of 21 and had never been so happy in all my life. Spent six months, I think, with just a big dumb smile on my face. Everything seemed great. Every day seemed better than the day before. That's the experience of many a new convert. But I can see some of you already got a little grin on your face and nodding your heads because you know what comes after that period, don't you? What's the next thing that comes? Trials. Testings. Your faith gets tested. If faith is a muscle, well, the gym where we build that muscle up is the trials of living in this world. And Abram's faith is now to be tested. Remember, he had a promise His offspring would inherit the promised land. Through his offspring, all the families of the world would be blessed. His name already meant blessed or honoured father. Later on, we're going to find that God changes his name a little bit and calls him the father of many nations, still blessed and honoured. Yet he has no children and his wife is barren. We know that Abram believed. We know that he responded in faith. Yet he has this wife who has no children. And now he's in the promised land. We don't know exactly how much time has passed. It sort of seems to suggest that all this has flowed on fairly quickly. He's in the promised land and what does he find? Well, it seems that the promised land might be barren. Here he is, Abram, with the promises of God that his offspring are going to rule the world, that his offspring are going to uh, bless all the nations, that by virtue of his offspring, all the people of the world will be blessed or cursed, and his wife is barren, and he's in the promised land, and we see at verse 10 that now there was a famine in the land. This is a test. This is a trial. You can imagine in that initial rush of faithful obedience, that that joy of knowing that you are... uh, in the family of God, as it were. You suddenly get to the thing that God has promised and there it doesn't seem to be so good. It doesn't seem to be so fine. You've got flocks and herds, you've got a household, you've got servants and you've got to feed them. And it's not raining 
in its due season. The flocks get hungry, the people get hungry. The promised land appears to be barren. Now, we're not told that Abram was specifically commanded not to go to the land of Egypt, but in Scripture from this point on, from the book of Genesis forward through your Old Testaments, you'll find that pretty much every time someone who is considered to be one of the people of God ventures from the promised land to somewhere like Egypt, you will find that usually this is a bad thing. It's not a positive thing. Usually this is indicating that there is a failure in their faith. Now, I'm not saying a complete failure. God is faithful. But I'm saying that that person's individual faith has faltered at that time. It's, it's the pattern of the Old Testament. When you walk out of the promised land, that is not a good thing. Abram goes down into Egypt to sojourn there, for the famine was severe in the land. We all live in the marketplace of the world, don't we? We all live in this society. We all live in the midst of foreigners, as it were. Remember, we're kingdoms of the citizen of heaven. Doesn't matter what your worldly heritage is, we've got a heavenly heritage. And yet, we all have to live in the world around about us and we all have to trade with it and do business with it. We all, we all have to get our provisions, as it were, from it. I mean, in the New Testament, in the books of First uh, and Second Corinthians and also in Romans, doesn't the Apostle Paul have to talk to believers about where you can buy your food from? Can you buy meat in the marketplace? Can you buy meat that's come to the marketplace via the means of a temple? You know, the, the sheep gets taken into the temple, its throat gets cut, the blood gets poured out on the altar of an idol, then they dress the, dress the carcass, take it out into the market and sell it as flesh, fresh meat. Paul has to deal with all these things. Why? Because we've got to deal with the world around us. You know, here in Australia now, these days, it would be basically impossible for us to establish an isolated Christian community. We don't have the numbers. You know... The idea that we could be working with and only for Christians is kind of a crazy dream here in Australia. We deal with the world. Abram had to get down into Egypt. It doesn't tell us that he consulted with God. It doesn't tell us that he was commanded to go down there. But it tells us that he must have heard that food was available down there, that the Nile was still flooding regularly, that the fields were still being irrigated, that you could buy food. And so down he goes. At verse 11, we read, when he was about to enter Egypt, he said to Sarai, his wife, I know that you are a woman beautiful in appearance. And I'll stop there and let's just explain a thought here. You sort of read this and then if you read carefully and you start to work out the, the ages of the people involved and things like that, you come to the conclusion that Sarai here must have been about 60 years old. And you think... How can a 60-year-old be a beautiful woman? It's, it's, it's a reasonable thought. Just remember, she lived to be 127. She's about halfway through her life and she has not had children at this point. Would it be possible for us, if we were thinking of our own timescales, let's say, you know, average life, average life expectancy for a woman is something like 76 or 77, 
Would it be possible for us to imagine a 36, 37-year-old woman who had not had children and therefore still had the beauty of her youth upon her? That's not so impossible to imagine, is it? And that's um, probably the way you need to think concerning Sarai. She had not had children and she was around about halfway through her life. And so it it doesn't seem almost it doesn't seem that um, strange to think that at this point in her life she is a beautiful woman. I know that you are a woman, beautiful in appearance. What's more, she would probably have looked different to the Egyptians. There's there's a certain um, there's a certain attraction. You know, um, how would I put this? I, I, I'm trying to sort of tap dance gently through the through the whole idea. But okay, here's a thought. That son of mine there, that one. I remember one day my wife and I checked into a hotel in Sydney or a motel in Sydney. We were there for the weekend and he was there with us. And at that point he had very light blonde hair and he was a a vigorous and strong little baby. He was about 12 months old maybe, about 12 months old. And as we were checking in, a busload of Asian tourists turned up. And you know what they did? They queued up for photographs nursing this blonde baby. They, they just queued up for photographs nursing a baby that looked completely different to their own um, ethnic appearance. Sarah may well have um, demonstrated a completely different ethnic beauty to that which the Pharaoh saw every other day of the week. I know that you're a woman beautiful in appearance and when the Egyptians see you, they will say, this is his wife. Then they will kill me, but they will let you live. Say you are my sister, that it may go well with me because of you and that my life may be spared for your sake. Now, I think we can, we can say that here Abram is making a mistake. I think we can say that here he is in a way sinning. Now, in what way? What mistake is he making? Well, is this trusting the Lord? You know, you've got the promises of God. Remember, who was going to do everything? Back at the start of uh, Genesis chapter 12, just reading from verse 1, I will show you a land. I will make you a great nation. I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you. And the one who dishonours you, I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. All of those promises... Who was the active participant in that promise or that promissory agreement? Who was doing it? God. Everything there, God, I will do it. I will do it. I will do it. Not Abram. God, I will do it. Now, Abram comes to hard times and he heads on down into Egypt. He has a wife. We realise as we work our way through the book of Genesis that this wife is most certainly the wife God has given him and this wife is most certainly going to be the mother of the faithful. Yet even so, Abram thinks to himself, God needs a little bit of my help here. God needs me to make a plan. God needs me to just make sure I'm okay. And so he makes a plan based on a little bit of dishonesty. You know, it's a half-truth, isn't it? Because Sarai was his half-sister. A half-truth. 
you know, give a half truth, withhold the whole truth. You know, technically we would call it lying. When your kids do that, you know, when you, when you, when you found your kids up to some kind of mischief and you get the half truth that's meant to deflect the blame. Well, if you're a wise parent, you know what's going on. You understand. It's a form of dishonesty. He made a plan. Protect me. You, my wife, you protect me. You know, he, smart guy, he thought, I'll, I'll help God out. Just smooth out the waters just a little bit. Say you are my sister, that it may go well with me because of you and that my life may be spared for your sake. Verse 14, when Abram entered Egypt, the Egyptians saw that the woman was very beautiful. And when the princes of Pharaoh saw her, they praised her to Pharaoh. And the woman was taken into Pharaoh's house. Okay, let's stop and think about this. What is revealed to us here about the nature of Egypt? Pharaoh's name is never given, not anywhere in the Bible. No matter what time it was, no matter where they were, Pharaoh is not named. Not right up until you get to the life of Josiah. A Pharaoh is named in the book of Josiah just before the collapse of um, the kingdom of Judah. The Pharaoh's not named. We're just in this place that's called Egypt. We know what Abram expects in Egypt. And now we see what happens in Egypt. What kind of place is Egypt? If you were under this kind of government, what would you call it? Tyranny? Dictatorship? Corrupt? Evil? Pharaoh, there's a, there's a pretty girl out there. Oh, hang on, I'll just pull the curtain back and have a look at her. She looks all right. Go and get her. There's my new wife. What kind, of, what kind of nation is that? What kind of kingdom is that? When Pharaoh simply says, I like that one, she's mine. You know, Moses is in a way already setting up, as it were, later on in the five books that he wrote. He's already setting up the book of Exodus. Remember, the people of God had to escape from the nation of Egypt because it was an evil place. And the, and the Pharaoh was a tyrant. He was a bully. He was brutal. When the princes of Pharaoh saw her, at verse 15, they praised her to Pharaoh and the woman was taken into Pharaoh's house. And for her sake, he dealt well with Abram. And he had sheep, oxen, male donkeys, male servants, female servants, female donkeys and camels. So what's your relationship to this woman, sir? Well, She's, uh, she's uh, my uh, uh, sister. Ah, ah, I'll take your sister into my harem. She comes into my household. And uh, let's see, give him a hundred ewes. Give him a dozen oxen. Give him some donkeys. Give him some slaves. He'll be happy. I mean, after all. Who'd complain about getting rid of a sister into the royal household and receiving in return some goods? Receiving in return some wealth? He ought to think himself lucky. And Abram? He allows this to happen. Gets interesting in a way here. I like this. Verse 17. But the Lord afflicted Pharaoh and his house with great plagues because of Sarai, Abram's wife. So Pharaoh called Abram and said, what is this that you have done to me? 
Why did you not tell me that she was your wife? So, you know, this is interesting. You're dealing here with the superstitious people, the Egyptians, idolaters. Everything was a god. You've, you know, I've heard people talk about, is there a demon behind every bush? Well, in the minds of the Egyptians, there was certainly a god behind every bush and under it and over it and beside it. There were gods everywhere. And life was a very um, superstitious thing that they lived through. And they spent all of their time placating gods. And uh, if you uh, had a whole lot of bad stuff start happening in your household, event after event after event after event, well, they very quickly reached the conclusion that uh, we've offended, he would have said, the gods. We've offended the gods. His wise men, his counsellors would have said, you have offended the gods. There's a problem. And then he would have said, well, how do we work out what the problem is? And they said, well, let's, let's do a bit of divining. Let's consult the entrails of a chicken. Let's cast the dice. Let's, you know, draw, tick, draw the tickets out of a hat, whatever the problem might be. When did this start, by the way, Pharaoh? Well, it seemed to start just after that particular woman came into the uh, household. Ah, well, I've just consulted with the chicken, the, in, the entrails of the chicken, and the problem is that woman. You better ask her what's going on. And so they work out that Sarai is actually Abram's wife and that Pharaoh, even Pharaoh, should not have, should not have assaulted the covenant of marriage. Okay, we're in a totalitarian society where the people are basically under the command of a tyrant. And yet even in that society, Pharaoh should not have dishonoured marriage. Now, there's got to be application there for us today. There's got to be application there for the world that we live in today, for our nation. I think it was around about 40 odd years ago that we... uh, came up with this thing that we call no-fault divorce where people could very easily divorce for any number of reasons. It took 40 years to come up with that um, gay mirage, you know, pretend homosexual marriage. We would do well to look at the scriptures as as a nation and to see that even Pharaoh was held guilty before God because he dishonoured marriage. And even if he did it in ignorance, he was still held guilty. And he was still, as it were, punished or disciplined. Verse 18, so Pharaoh called Abram and said, what is this that you have done to me? Why did you not tell me that she was your wife? Why did you say she is my sister so that I took her for my wife? Now then, here is your wife. Take her and go. Get the problem out of this place. Get the problem away from me. I want to go back to having good luck. I want to go back to having placated gods. I don't want to be at war with the gods. I want them on my side. You're the problem. Get out. Take her with you. And Pharaoh gave men orders concerning him. These orders would have been don't touch him, don't trouble him, don't take his wife again. Leave him and his Household alone. And they sent him away with his wife and all that he had. 
what can we draw from this? We've already started to draw a whole lot of things from this, but let's, um, let's, let's get in a little bit more detail. Let's clarify these things. First of all, Abram, saved by grace, through faith. Saved by grace, through faith. Not saved by his own works. He can make mistakes. He can sin. He can falter. He can go down into the land of Egypt and there he can sin against his own wife. There he can put his own marriage, as it were, at risk. Trade off his wife for comfort and for wealth. But God had said, I will. Remember, I will. I will bless you. I will make you a blessing. I will be the God of your descendants. Through you, all the nations upon the earth will be blessed. God had said, I will. My friends, we don't have permission to sin. We just don't. God does not give us permission to sin. The scripture doesn't tell us that all of your sins were punished in the Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, go out into the world and do as you please. That's not what we're told. We are commanded to continue to obey the righteous law of God, to seek to live a life that is actually righteous and holy in the sight of our God. We are indeed commanded to do these things. And the fact that we fail to do these things only makes us more sinful, not less. But where sin abounds, grace abounds all the more. You see, if our salvation depended upon us, if it depended upon our wisdom, if it depended upon our righteousness, if it depended upon our machinations, my friends, we're lost. We're lost. If I had to do something towards saving myself, I might as well give up now. I'm damned. I have not the power. I have not the righteousness. I have not the ability to make myself right in the sight of God. I simply cannot do it. Only God can grant righteousness in his own sight. And we, though we be sinners, though we be fools, though we mess around in Egypt, think about that. If I ask you the question, do you mess around in Egypt? Do you know what I'm getting at? Do you understand what I'm asking you? Do you mess around in Egypt, my friends? Do you have dealings with the idolaters? Let's be honest here. We know it's true. We know it's true. You know, no one can hold up their hand and say, I'm pure, I'm righteous, I'm holy. From the time I've been converted, I've never taken a bad, bad decision, never said a bad word, never thought a bad thought, never did a bad deed. We might wish that that were true, but we know that it is not. That is the fact. Yet, my friends, we have... A shepherd. His name is the Lord Jesus Christ and we are his sheep. And he draws us back. He keeps us in the paths of righteousness. And though we ourselves through foolishness would condemn ourselves if ever we were left alone long enough to do it. He draws his own back to himself. Things were not so bad, though Abram was doing so many things that were unwise and foolish. 
He went down into Egypt. He got it all wrong. He did a whole lot of silly things. And by the grace of God, because God had chosen to bless him, he walked out of Egypt with sheep, oxen, male donkeys, male servants, female servants, female donkeys and camels. He had tried to give away his wife and he got his wife back. God is gracious and merciful. God is gracious and merciful. I tell you, do not sin. I tell you, do not compromise. I tell you to strive to live a Christ-like life in this world. You must. I also tell you, when you sin, when you fail, when you stumble, Christ is our great shepherd and his blood has been shed for our sins. We have been purchased with his blood. We do have security. Repent of your sins. Seek forgiveness in his name and know that God is faithful and just and cleanses us of all unrighteousness. I'm not saying take sin lightly, but what I'm saying is God's grace is greater than our wickedness. God's grace abounds all the more. We'll always, we who belong to Christ, will always be drawn back into the kingdom. We might well be disciplined, but we will be drawn back in. That's the promise of God. We're not reliant upon our own strength. What else can we get out of this? Well, I want to talk here about what I'll call the sin of placing a value on human life. What do I mean by that? Well, I think Abram got a bit calculating. I think Abram started to sort of try and work things out in worldly terms. He thought to himself, I've got the promise of God. God has said that he will do this, 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 this and that for me and for my offspring. And that through my offspring, all the world will be blessed. And I've got this woman here and she's barren. It wouldn't be so bad if I lost the barren woman because Abram thought the promises were made to me. I think whether we like it or not, now no one who is faithful is perfect and no one who has been converted has had their mind truly sanctified. Whether we like it or not, I think Abram thought to himself, I'm more valuable than my spouse. I'm more important than my spouse. If I lose her along the way, it doesn't matter so much as long as I'm still there for the promises of God to be fulfilled through me. You see what I mean? He put sort of, he calculated a value or a price for human life. That's what they do in Egypt, apparently. They put a value on the price of human life. Now we can apply that in all sorts of ways, can't we? Think of the society in which we live. It's all about putting value on human life. It seems to me that at this moment, many people who have authority and power in this nation look upon the people of this nation in much the same way that a farmer would look upon cattle in a feedlot. Certain inputs, certain output, these things have certain value to me and I'll move them on in time. A price is put upon life. What's the value of a baby? 
What's the value of an unborn baby? In many local government areas in Australia, it's almost impossible to get permission to cut down a tree. But it's not impossible to go and get that unborn baby put to death because it's coming at an inconvenient time. Or there's something inconvenient about the baby. It's not the right to gender. Or it has perhaps some disability. And doctors tell you to put a price on the baby. It has a value. Compare the value of the baby to the difficulty that you might have in, the future, in your future life. My friends, what do we know? We who are the people of God. What do we know? We who read Genesis. Genesis chapters 1, 2 and 3. What do we know about people? Male and female. We know that we were created in the image of God. In his own image, he made them. Is it for us to put value on human life? Is it for us to say one person is worth more than another person because that person is more intelligent or stronger or more physically able? And what about um, the way that increasingly we deal with the elderly and the frail? You know, this concept of uh, a good death. What are we doing there? Our nation. Should we do such things? Should people do such things? Should the people of God do such things or participate in such things? Absolutely not. Absolutely not. The value of people, our fellow man, our fellow Women, is that we were created in the image of God. As such, God has sovereign rule over our lives and the lives even of unbelievers. We don't calculate the value of human life. We should not. He made that mistake, didn't he? I think he calculated his, the value of his life as compared to the value of his wife. And thought, well, if I lose my wife, it doesn't matter. She's barren anyway. He didn't quite understand the promise of God, did he? And there's something that we all have to grow in. We have to understand God's promises toward us. We have to understand God's word. We have to understand more clearly that which God intends for us. He was willing to put his wife at risk because he calculated a value. I've already mentioned it, but um, I'll mention it again. What kind of world is this that Abraham entered into? What kind of nation? What kind of society? One where the ruler felt that he could do whatsoever he pleased. One where the ruler felt that, the, that uh, he could lay claim to anything he wanted. Have you noticed what kind of people are ruling in our world today? They think they can get away with pretty much anything they want. The only thing they're afraid of is bad press and they are more or less uh, holding hands with the press. So many of them. I know, there are. don't get me wrong, there are decent people trying to do decent things, but you don't have to think too hard to come to the conclusion that there are many people who are not decent people trying to do good things 
with power and authority in the world at this moment. They think they can get away with anything. But God rules over them. God rules over even Pharaoh, the idolatrous Pharaoh, that fool who saw a God behind, beside, over and under every bush, every tree, everything that he saw. God ruled over even Pharaoh. God ruled over even his household. Do you look at the world around you now? Do you look at the way things are? And I do. Are you unhappy about many of the things you see? I am. Do you feel that we could be governed better, more justly, more wisely? I do. Guess what? Even if those who rule are amoral, immoral, evil, without conscience, people, idolatrous people, guess what? God rules over them. The heart of a king is in the hand of the Lord and he can direct it whichever way he pleases, just like a stream on the ground. Did you ever like to play on the beach? You know, you dig a hole not far from the water and then you get your buckets and you get the water and you go up to the beach and you fill your hole and then you start making little ditches and drains and in your own little imagination you're making a river and there might be a house beside the river and all those kinds of games that you can play on the beach as a kid. The scripture tells me that the heart of a king in the hand of the Lord is just like a kid playing with water at the beach. Whichever way you want it to go, you can make it to go. God rules over all of them. God rules over this nation. God rules over the rulers of this nation, whether they be believers or unbelievers. God rules over all of them. Where does that leave us? Well, my friends, my friends, first of all, though you look at the world and though you look at our nation and you think things could be better, our rulers could be wiser, our rulers could be moral, our rulers could do what is right. Here's the thing. Things are as they are because God has set them in place. Things are as they are because God has ordained that things will be this way. For his own glory, for his own purposes, even if we don't understand. And I admit, confess, I'm happy to tell you, many things are happening that I do not understand. Many things are happening that I do not understand. God rules and reigns over all of these things, each and every individual one of them. So we ought to be careful, and you can point at me because I know some of you realise what I'm like at times. I, I get a bit, I get a bit uh, stirred up, I get a bit riled up. Sometimes I get a bit like a dog straining against the chain. He just wants to get hold of something and shake it. I get that way when I look at what they're doing in this nation. But here's the thing. I've got to be very careful, haven't I? that I not be really rebelling against God himself. God has set things to be the way they are. This is all according to his ordained will. Even their evil deeds, even the wickedness that they do. He's revealing his glory. He's revealing his glory in these things. Remember when Moses was delivering the people from the land of Egypt? What did God have to say to Pharaoh? I set you up in order to get glory from pulling you down. I set you in place in order that I might show my power in striking you down. 
concerning those who would rule this nation and concerning those who do things in wickedness, God won the last election. God won the last federal election. He won the last state election. He won the last local council area election. You want to know something in terms of our democracy? God has never lost an election. God has never lost an election. Though we might wish that we had different rulers who were doing different things, God has never lost an election. And though I vote according to uh, the wisdom that I have, even so, God has never lost an election. And I recommend to you that you vote according to the wisdom that you have. Even so, God has never lost an election. He rules over Egypt. He rules over Australia, even today. The Son of God is at the right hand of God. He has the scepter of authority in his hand. He rules over nations. He can dash them to pieces with the rod of iron if he so desires. That might be what he's going to do to our nation, and it is not for us to complain about his enacting of his sovereign will. Even so, my friends, resist wickedness. Even so, my friends, if you can vote for righteousness, vote for righteousness. Even so, my friends, do what is right in this nation. Even so, my friends, proclaim what is right in this nation. Who knows but that God might use people like you and I to grant repentance and to bring people back to himself. Even in the midst of judgment. Even in the midst of judgment. My friends, let's continue to live a life of faith. Trust in God. Know that when you step aside, when you stumble in Egypt, God will pick you back up. Know that God is holding you secure and safe. Know that God, God's promises reside upon us. It's not for us to live like the world around us. It's not for us to calculate the price of a human being, a person's value. It's not for us to uh, compromise with the world around us, even though in our foolishness we often do. The Lord is our God. The Lord rules over all things. The Lord rules over us. We who are his people, we know the things that have been revealed. Turn to Deuteronomy 29, 29. There we'll close. Deuteronomy chapter 29 and the last verse in the chapter. The secret things belong to the Lord our God. They're the things we don't know. Why is the Lord doing things in this way? I don't know. Why has the Lord ordained that certain things happen in certain ways? Apart from possibly the most general of answers, I don't know. He's doing it for his glory. He's doing it according to his will. I can't tell you more than that in many circumstances. The secret things belong to the Lord our God, but the things that are revealed belong to us and to our children forever, that we may do all the words of this law. The things that are revealed are revealed to we who are the people of God, that we might live in obedience to the will of God. The things that are revealed belong to us and to our children forever, that we may do all the words of this law. Why has God revealed these things to us? Because he longs for us, he commands for us, he wants for us to be obedient to that which he has revealed. He's gracious and merciful, he forgives us our sins and he commands our obedience. That's the God whom we serve, the God of Abraham. Let's close in prayer. 
Our Father in heaven, we do thank you and praise you that our salvation through Jesus Christ our Lord is secure. And though we venture into Egypt and there we stumble, yet even so you draw us back to yourself. You uphold us with your gracious hand. Father in heaven, we thank you and we praise you that just as Abram was protected even against his own foolishness, and he was protected from the power of Pharaoh, and he was protected from the power of the world around about him. Even so, we, Father, are also protected. And the things that you have given us are things that cannot be taken from us, and we have eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. For this we give you praise. In his name alone do we pray. Amen.